Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gatsa. Today, I'm very excited to have a wonderful guest, a prolific uh, author from India, Rajiv Malhotra. How are you doing, sir? Wonderful, Gad. Wonderful to meet you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation between two of us, both Americans, but from different civilizations. So <laughs> well, I'm Canadian, so I'm almost an American. Okay, well, you are American, North American. You are North <laughs> there you Canadians go. are actually very fond of saying that they are Americans, which they are. <laughs> well, I and I did study in the U.S. and I was a professor in the U.S., so I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, okay, let me just mention for the people who may not know who you are, uh, I don't know if this is a loaded term or not. You're a Hindutva activist, which basically means, I guess, Indian nationalist. You are the founder of the Infinity Foundation. You're the author of many books, including... Let me just plug some of these here. Being Different. Thank you so much, by the way, for sending me all these, these books. I have to go through them. Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. And then arguably the biggest book I've ever had from a guest on The Sad Truth, coming in at about 35,000 pages, Snakes in the Ganga, your latest book. We will be talking about this and many, many other books. Did I miss anything in the intro that you'd like to add before we move on? So I would like to make a correction. Uh, I'm not a Hindutva activist. Okay, let me tell you how I describe myself. I'm a scholar. First of all, there's a difference between a scholar and an activist because a scholar produces original scholarship and he, he talks to other scholars. He criticizes other scholars. They criticize him. Uh, so there's a, there's a scholar to scholar peer discussion going on and controversies and so on. Activists are people who may not do original work, they may not do original scholarship, they may not publish anything of original value, but they take what's already out there by other scholars, some they agree, some they disagree, and they spin it. So they are more like a distribution chain of knowledge rather than producers of original knowledge. So I take pride in the fact that I published eight groundbreaking scholarship books. Each of them has made a huge impact. Each of them challenges the prevailing discourse. So that qualifies me as a scholar, I would say. Uh, and people have written PhDs on my books, uh, both for and against, uh, you know. Uh, the, the, term, the second issue is the term Hindutva. Now, Hindutva has become a loaded term uh, by people who don't like the Hindu Dharma. And they've, they've, uh, they've characterized Hindutva as a sort of a politicization of Hinduism. Sort of like if you're a Jewish person and they sort of say that you are, a, rather than saying you're a Jewish scholar, which is one thing, if they say you are a scholar of uh, Israeli politics, that kind right. of a thing. Or a Zionist. A Zionist. So a Hindutva is more defined by those people in a limited sense. But a Hindu would consider that being a Hindu uh, includes the spiritual dimension. I have a very active spiritual practice. I write a lot about what I call mind sciences which is the whole yoga, meditation, the inner being, the metaphysics. I do a lot. Most of my work is on philosophy. Uh, and then I talk about the social aspects of life. And in the social aspects of life, I've talked about, I've written about the history of Indian science, Indian mathematics, astronomy, etc. And of course, the political dimension is a part of it. So you might say, in my way of looking at it, Hindutva or what people, people have called Hindutva is a subset of being a Hindu. And so I would I would define myself as a Hindu scholar or Indian scholar or Vedic scholar. Vedics, Vedic is the Vedas are the original texts of the Indian tradition. So that's just a quibbling on semantics. But I understand your intention is just fine.
I, 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 I stand corrected. Now, you mentioned one word. You said Hindu Dharma. Can you explain what that uh, word means to our uh, viewers and listeners? Yeah. So the tradition of India, which ha has gone through many names, uh, the modern name is Hindu, Hinduism or Hindu Dharma. Uh, it starts with texts called the Vedas, uh, which, are, which are not uh, prophetic uh, because prophets see the difference between the Semitic religions, the Abrahamic religion on the one hand, and the Dharma tradition on the other, is that in the in the Abrahamic religions, God uh, speaks to the prophets and through the prophets to humanity. So the prophets are kind of scribes or intermediaries; they are conveying the message that God wants them to convey. And then the then the issue becomes which prophet is the most recent. And some people believe in this prophet, but not in that prophet. This is why there is a huge, uh, a huge controversy among the Abrahamic religions, because some people will say, I believe in your prophet, but mine is more recent and supersedes. And the other guy will say, well, I don't believe in your prophet anyway. So who is prophet and who is not becomes a debate on history. Now, in the Indian traditions, the original knowledge is not from prophets. The original knowledge is from people we call rishis who are enlightened beings and every human being has the capacity to be enlightened. You have that capacity. I have that capacity. There's nothing unique to an ancient person who was a rishi. We are all hardware equipped to be rishis. Some of us achieve it. Most of us don't. But a rishi is somebody who achieves a state of enlightenment where he understands the first principles of truth. He understands the metaphysics. He comes in direct contact with the ultimate reality. He, is, he, he achieves a state where it is, he is inseparable. There is no dichotomy, no separation between him and the ultimate reality. Now, this is available to every human being in our metaphysics, uh, which is shared by the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Sikh, the Jain, all the four Dharma traditions that share this idea. So one of the, your question is so important uh, because the difference between the Abrahamic religions and the, and the, and the Dharma traditions is that the Abrahamic religions, I've classified them as sort of historically determined, history-centric. They are, they are historically dependent in the sense that God intervenes in history in unique moments, and then he won't intervene again in the same way. And, and he may intervene later in a through a different prophet. And so if you miss that history, you missed it because God said, hey, listen, guys, I am not going to keep talking. I spoke once and it's too bad if you didn't get it. But I did leave enough evidence. I left some stone tablets. I left some manuscripts. I left various traditions. So you better go back and get your history right. In the Indian tradition, uh, the supreme person, who's all, there's one supreme person we have, same as you guys do. But the supreme person behaves differently. The supreme person says that I'm always available. It's sort of like there's, there's a cloud and anybody can go on the cloud and tap into it. But they need to have the right protocol. They need to have the right, uh, 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 the right technology to tap into the cloud. So the, the Dharma traditions work differently in the sense that the super, uh, ultimate reality is available to everybody at all times. They just need to be able to uh, uh, tap into it. And those who can are called rishis. Gotcha. So the, the, the rishis produced works, which we call the Vedas, similar to the Old Testament you know, the New Testament and, 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 and the uh, similar to uh, the Quran. But these are not 
things that scribes wrote down because God dictated to them. These are things that they discovered. They discovered in uh, enlightened state of consciousness. Gotcha. So there are many, many rishis, like there are many prophets. And these many rishis came up with different insights. And, they, uh, and, and so these have been compiled into texts called the Vedas. So the, the, that became the origin of our, our faith. Uh, and so as this faith uh, moved over time, people gave it different names. Uh, some people called it Sanatana Dharma, which means eternal Dharma, the Dharma forever, uh, which has no history of uh, first, last. It was always there. This is the eternal truth. Uh, then some people gave it different names. And now modern people have called it Hinduism. And when the British called it Hinduism, some Indian nationalists didn't like ism because they said, you know, we don't believe in isms. That's a very European kind of a suffix. And it sort of uh, turns it into dogma. Uh, so they, they, I would have said, okay, if you don't like Hinduism, you should call it Hindu Dharma because that is perfectly uh, Indian term. But they, they coined the term Hindutva for that. Got it. So that so the origin of the word Hindutva is about a hundred years old, uh, and and it's a reaction to uh, to the the British calling it Hinduism and the Indians wanting to uh, take it back into their own term. So they coined a new term Hindutva. Now, technically speaking, Hindutva means the essence of Hindu. It means Hindu essence, hyphenated Hindu hyphen essence. So they're right. Uh, they 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 coined a term called Hindu essence, but you don't actually need a new term at all because just calling it Hindu Dharma suffices. So that's sort of a little bit about the semantics and the, the history of all this. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for you. Uh, so I guess my next point, because you, you mentioned Abrahamic uh, faiths, uh, as I think you, you probably know, we're Lebanese Jews and I've always felt a strong affinity with India in general, in, in several ways it has manifested itself. Uh, for example, when I was a graduate student, uh, most of my close friends were Indian, Abhilash Dave and uh, Anil Kal and his wife Sudeshna and Rahul Guha. And I'm sorry if I don't mention all the, the friends that I had. Last year, forgive me for being immodest, I received a personal letter from Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi uh, thanking me for my work and so on. So I've always felt this affinity with India. Now, I think I... I place it, and you'll you'll tell me if you think that this is a viable explanation. I think that both cultures have this unquenchable love for knowledge, right? So, for example, in the Jewish faith, uh, I, I've told the story before, but you may have not heard it, so please let me just briefly mention it to you. After I finished my MBA, I had done an undergraduate in mathematics and computer science, and then I had done an MBA, uh, and I was thinking then to go on straight for my PhD. One of my brothers was looking to try to entice me to work with him for a few years in Southern California before I would go back and do my PhD. When my mother found out of that uh, possibility that he was trying to get me to maybe, you know, put a pause in my education and work with him, she took me to the side one day in, in their house. And she said, you realize that, you know, if you, if you leave now school, uh, you, you know, basically you'll be viewed as someone who's dropped out of school. Now I already had a bachelor's degree and an MBA, but it would bring shame to the family if I didn't go on. So that gives you kind of the standard of excellence that is expected. And I think Indians are very similar to that. Do, do you see that connection? Have you thought about that connection? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a common, uh, common, uh, uh, you know, appreciation. The the Indians have a quest for knowledge, uh, the, the, rather than a, a sort of, uh, uh, and, and this quest for knowledge also makes Indians argumentative, because those who are quest, those who are searching for knowledge are arguing, and they're always quibbling and arguing with each other, and and uh, nothing is ever final or perfect. I mean, they're just going on. So that that is the essence of being a scientist. Even you know, you're you're scientifically trained as I am. And so Indians make very natural scientists. It also is very compatible with democracy because, you know, you always want to not just obey, but you want to also think for yourself. Uh, so these qualities are common. And there's another quality also. And I'm one of the co-founders of the Hindu-Jewish coalition here in New Jersey. Oh, nice. Yeah, We have uh, we have two Jewish people and two Hindus, and we created this Hindu-Jewish coalition, and now it's spread quite a bit. Uh, the the What's common is also in the social-political dimension, in the domain, that we, neither of us convert. We are not evangelical going around and expansionist. So there's no history of conquest. Yes. We didn't. We didn't claim greatness. You know, I was I was made chairman of the uh, Asian Commission, Asian Education uh, Commission by the state of New Jersey many, many uh, decades ago. Uh, and so when we started uh, documenting the history of Asia, uh, history, uh, history of Asia and Asian influence, uh, one of the Europeans who was sitting in the commission said, you know, but we, where are the conquerors? Who, where were the armies? Uh, how, where, uh, so he was thinking about, you know, unless it's a, you know, Roman army or some army here and there, uh, you don't have a civilization because you never really spread it. How could you spread it if you didn't conquer? So I said, you know, India conquered China and Japan without any army, without any soldiers. They came to get the knowledge. The Chinese would send their, the Chinese emperors for over a thousand years would send their brightest students to India as with the Japanese, as with the Mongolians, as with the Tibetans, as with the Cambodians, Vietnamese, all of these guys to get knowledge the way people go to Harvard and Ivy Leagues thinking that they're getting great knowledge there. So the spread of Indian civilization was peaceful. It was not pushed on others, but pulled in by them. They were the receiving, the receiving side wanted to pull it. So I think that's also common between the Jewish and the Hindu faiths in that they have not wanted to uh, go and uh, aggressively expand themselves, certainly not militarily and certainly and certainly not with uh, trying to impose uh, their laws on other people and collect taxes and and or and build an empire. I mean, the, it's never happened. The, the, even when uh, the Hindu kings were very rich compared to the other countries, uh, uh, they never took on an ambition to go out and conquer other people, uh, even when they could have, even when India was very rich. It, it, it preferred to trade in knowledge and, uh, you know, knowledge, knowledge and technology and science and trade and all that, but did not turn that into an enterprise of conquest. I think that's something very important with the Jewish people. Yeah, there there is a an ancient uh, Jewish community in India. Are oh, they yeah. are, are they still around? And can you yes. tell us anything about them? So, you know, one of the oldest and they claim they are the oldest surviving, that continuous, never been destroyed, is actually in India. And this happened uh, when the Jews were persecuted. They went in different directions and they got different kinds of reception. But in India, the local Hindu kings received them and gave them land. And uh, uh, they, they have a synagogue, which is one of the oldest. Uh, it's still functioning. Uh, if you go to Kerala, uh, one of the places in the south, states in the south, uh, a, a place to see is that synagogue and you should get that the people there to give you a talk on the history of that it's quite remarkable 
are the are the are the Indian Jews phenotypically? If I look at them today, do they look as though they're Semitic? You know, from from the Mizrahi Jews, or do they look you know whatever? They look different. They look different from other South Indians. Okay, but I think they've pigmatized because they've lived in the South, which is very warm climate. Very uh, North Indians uh, uh, compared to the South Indians have little different pigments because of climate. Sure. It's the same people, same ethnic groups but they're pigmentized differently. So I would say that uh, you can tell the features are different, uh, but they have become in Indianized over the generations. Got you. Uh, okay, so next what I wanted to talk about are, are there elements in Hinduism? So as, a, as an evolutionary psychologist, I'm interested both in human universals, things that make the, the Bolivian consumer and the Nigerian consumer and the Canadian consumer similar, because they share a common biological heritage. But I'm also interested in studying the evolutionary roots of cross-cultural differences. You know, why why is Indian cuisine spicier than Swedish cuisine? So, so we look both at human universals and cross-cultural differences. Are there elements, going back to our original conversation of Hinduism versus the Abrahamic faiths, are there elements in Hinduism that you would consider universalist? I could find that in any tradition faith yeah. tradition and are there unique elements of hinduism that i couldn't find anywhere else yes absolutely in fact one of the books i wrote is called sanskrit non-translatables and 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 that book basically says that there are words in sanskrit that capture experiences that are not found in other traditions and hence there is no english equivalent or chinese or hebrew equivalent of those you can find approximations and i i grant that every culture has the, the non-translatables there must be hebrew non-translatables sure. there must be chinese non-translatables so the sanskrit non-translatables capture a whole lot of this what is unique about the the hindu tradition because there are words that don't that don't have an equivalent the the basic difference starts you're an evolutionary psychologist, so let me talk about the human mind, the consciousness. Sure. The, the, the Vedic idea, which permeates Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, for sure, uh, is that uh, uh, there is one consciousness that exists, and we are a manifestation of that consciousness. Now, the difference being that in the Abrahamic traditions, God stays outside the universe. God, God is in one bucket, and then there is the physical cosmos in the, another bucket and God's interaction with the cosmos is the subject of a lot of theology and he, inter, he, he interacts through uh, prophets in Christianity he also comes in as a as his son he, he takes form uh, but in Islam he doesn't uh, because Muhammad is not a form of God they clearly mentioned and the uh, Judaism also he doesn't so but in Hinduism not only does he manifest as Jesus, but it does it over and over again, over and over again, okay? And not only that, but the entire cosmos is nothing but the body of the Supreme Person. So the, the matter, the, the, the philosoph philosophical debates in India are that there's a potter who's making something out of clay, and he can shape clay in different ways and make different things out of it. The question comes, where, where does the clay come from? Where did the clay come from? And, and, and it's not ex nihilo, as in the Abrahamic tradition, that it came out of nothing. Uh, in, the, in the Vedic traditions, it is, it is the Supreme Person's own and infinitesimal portion of the Supreme Person becomes the clay of which the whole cosmos is made. 
So the supreme, per so everything is sacred. That is why uh, we are accused of idolatry because we find sacredness in everything. We can look at any object, even the things that I don't like, even the virus, the you know COVID virus, and even the bacteria, and even my enemy, uh, even the dangerous things, even the poison. They are not. There is no such thing as a devil, and and, and everything that exists, living, non-living, whatever is nothing but a manifestation, a form of the one supreme person. So the one consciousness has taken this form as matter and then entered this matter to move it forward in evolution and then entered it again to move it forward further. So the evolutionary jumps are what, are, what the tradition calls involution, which means consciousness gets entangled in matter, which is nothing but consciousness already. So, so you know, let's just say the big C consciousness becomes a small C little matter. And, and let's say then C2 is the big consciousness gets into the C1 and makes it into C2. And then that then the big consciousness gets into C2 and makes it into C3. So it keeps, it's a series, an infinite series of evolutions, each of them brought by the involution of the supreme being into his own manifestation so 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 it is not a dualistic system we have we have a big debate between dualism and uh, and the unified idea the dualism camp says that there is god and then there is matter and then they 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 have to face the issue from the oppo opposing camp how did this matter come where did it come from what is its origin and all that whereas the non-dualists say that there is no such thing as separate matter that also is a form of the divine but divine has voluntarily taken the form to look like matter to behave like matter to behave like it's just material it's dense uh, you know non-living non entities that follow some algorithms and laws of nature and that is the world of causation so you have in indian metaphysics there's a world of causation which as a scientist, you will understand the world of causation is what we are discovering in physics. All the causation laws that we know in physics are part of this world of causation. And we keep discovering new, new kinds of physics, new kinds of causation. Uh, and the, then there's a world of consciousness beyond causation. So every one of us has the capacity, whether we achieve it or not is a different matter, to untangle ourselves from this world of causation. And that is what the ultimate aim of meditation is. It's not just relaxation. It's not just to improve your cardiac functions. All those are side effects. But the real function to, of meditation and all the spiritual practices is to restore and recover our state of consciousness, which is beyond causation. So when, when Buddha achieves nirvana and when a Hindu rishi achieves moksha, which is somewhat similar, uh, and the same experiences in all the dharma traditions, they are describing a state of beyond causation. So they are not affected by, you know, your, your body will die, you will fall ill, but it's not, it's not you. The, 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 the self is higher than all of this because the real self is beyond this causation. However, Rajiv is a kind of a, a belief that I am this body, the self entangled, the real self entangled in this physical body, thinking it has ident identifying itself as being limited by this body, 
having the goals and agendas of fulfilling the uh, desires of this body, that entity, uh, which is not really the, the, the real self, but that entity is what Rajiv is. So Rajiv's spiritual quest is to, uh, to discover and experience the real self and be able to watch Rajiv function the way you have your, you're sitting in a car and you're not the car, but the car is driving around. And, and, and so the body is, and Rajiv included, is like a vehicle, is a vehicle through, or for the spiritual being to move around. But the spiritual being is separate from this vehicle. This, I think, is the quintessential uh, Hindu teaching. And it's very different from the idea that, you know, we are original sinners. Uh, because when I have a discussion with uh, Christians, often they start by saying, have you been saved? And I start by saying I was never condemned to begin with. <laughs> and you seem like a nice guy. I don't think you were condemned. I don't think you've done anything wrong. So why would you be condemned? Right. And then it takes a it takes a dis the discussion in a direction they're not used to because they're used to uh, somebody saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been saved. And they'll say, no, 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 your saving is not real. It's not authentic. Mine is more real. And then you get into, you know, who has the right history. But I avoid that whole controversy by saying I I've never been condemned anyway. I, I don't need to be saved. So the real... The, the depth of this position is that we are originally divine. We are not original sinners from a condition from where we need to be saved. We are originally divine. Every creature, even the little ant, even the bacteria, are all originally divine. And one divine, one, that have taken forms in different bodies and started behaving like separate, independent living creatures, restricted in their, those bodies, and restricted by the laws of causation, but that's illusionary and that's temporary. The, the ultimate absolute nature of all these entities is that they're originally divine. So this, I, I think, is a quite a remarkable conclusion. So I wonder then if, you, right, if the, if the Catholics start with the premise that they are born of original sin, and as you said in the Hindu tradition, you know, you're born as a divine entity, I wonder if this may be a stretch, but I wonder if on an existential level, the, the, the person who follows Hinduism is inherently more existentially happy because he is not squashed by the, you know, the stain of that original sin. Is, is there any research, empirical research that suggests that inherently, you know, Hindus are more likely to be existentially happy because of their uh, faith-based teachings as compared to, say, the stifling of guilt that you might experience in Catholicism? Has that ever so, been studied? No, I think this is a very interesting question. There's two differences. One is the idea that my ultimate reality of who I am is not only untainted, but nothing wrong can happen. Uh, this body, they can throw me in jail, they can burn me, they can, uh, you know, kill me. Uh, maybe I'm poor, but, you know, whatever it is, these are clothes I'm wearing. These are clothes I'm wearing and the clothes are dirty and maybe they're ill and they have all these problems, but that's not who I really am. I'm being told to constantly remind that I'm someone else. The second part is the law of karma and reincarnation, which right. says this life is not the first one, not the last one. So it also gives you a sense of, hey, you know, I am I'm, I'm dealing with the results of causation. I, I did some actions and the uh, cause effect is that now I'm facing certain predicaments. And now I have choices, which will be the next uh, next line of actions. So I am here because of my circumstances, which I created due to past actions. And 
And what I act, the choices I make now are the fresh actions for which I will have repercussions in the future. That's how causation works. The difference between causation in physics and causation in the Hindu uh, metaphysics is that the Hindu causation goes beyond a lifespan. It says that there is a, from cause, between cause and effect, there is a, there is a, there is an imprint. Cause produces an imprint, like a cloud on the cloud, there's an imprint. And then that imprint affects the consequences, like quantum, in a quantum sense. So all the karma I do produce imprints that may or may not manifest in this life. They may manifest in a future life. So when, I'm, when I die, this baggage of imprints has to find another body to express itself. And it may find a body of this kind of person or that kind of person, whatever is the best fit to express itself. And so this karma keeps playing out from life to life. Now, the effect of this is a bit of a complacency. Hindus can also be very sort of complacent and say, now, why should I worry? Why do I have to go and fight these guys? You know, they'll figure it out. If not in this life, next life. I was going to exactly speak to that point. You know, okay. And, yeah. you know, maybe I'm suffering. Maybe I'm suffering. But you know what? I'm doing the right thing. Next life, I'll be okay. So the accommodation of not being limited to this bodily self and not being limited to this particular life of the bodily self, these two have the effect that Hindus can easily talk themselves into saying that all is well, you don't have to worry. This has good things and bad things about it. Right. I mean, the problem is that you don't have the ambition to go fight and kick ass and get organized and get take revenge and all, all those kind of things are not, not as easy. It's very difficult to mobilize Hindus to go out and do something uh, because they'll always give this kind of argument. They'll say, well, why should I do it? You know, he's doing all this because he's ignorant, but I shouldn't be like him like that. On the other hand, the positive is that, you know, there, there is less, uh, there's no call for violence against others. There's right. no, there's no concept of an infidel. Now, of course, Hindus are violent, like all other people, but that's not because Hinduism is making them violent. Right. They, being human beings and having the same kind of ego limitations and problems, they have these tendencies too, like other people. But as far as the dharma is concerned, there is no compulsion in the dharma, no injunction that says, go out after those infidels and kill them or do this or do that to them. That does not exist. But to 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 build on your comment about uh, Hindu complacency that you mentioned about two minutes ago, the point that I was going to make is that, for example, if you look at atheists, and, and I've made this argument, that an atheist, in a sense, by his non-belief, has to abide by carpe diem as a model because there is the, the party is going to end and there is no do over so you better you know go after it today and therefore that's an antidote to complacency whereas in the in the grand metaphysical narrative of hinduism where there is going to be reincarnation it speaks exactly to your point which if my lot today is not good and i don't seize the day today no worries there will be some future life where hopefully i will get the the rewards that are due to me so does that build on what you're saying yes it does i would take it a step further i think you're on the on that, some, something important i would say that the effect of this on let's say, environmental policy is different. Yeah. Because a Hindu says that, you know, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be born in this world. I better not have messed it up. I mean, you know, I mean, I better not have messed it up. I mean, uh, it, it's whereas an atheist would say, 
I better not mess up the environment because the fish will die is bad for the fishing industry. So it's more of a material, pragmatic, egotistical reason for not messing up the environment. The environment is a is matter meant for human pleasure, according to that according to that view. And so I don't want to destroy my material possessions that like I don't want to destroy my clothes and I don't want to destroy my house. Similarly, if I extrapolate the all of society, the environment is our house, we should not destroy it. But there's nothing sacred about it. It's not, it is not God's manifestation. It's not God's body like it is to the Hindus. So for the Hindus, the, re the, the reason why the environment has to be protected is because the environment is God's form and, and th therefore it is, to be, it is a sacred entity. And I, as a, as a creature, will go to be born again and again to, uh, this is my domicile. And so I don't want to ruin my domicile. So the, the depth of conviction on which the Hindu operates uh, as an environmentalist is quite different from that of uh, other people. Got you. Okay, a couple of uh, general questions about Indian society that I find interesting, uh, as again, as an evolutionist. So I'll talk about two things, arranged marriages and the historical caste system. Let's start with the caste system. Uh, where are we? in terms of the instantiation of the caste system today compared to say 50, 100 years ago? So in the, there are two Sanskrit words. Uh, one is called Varna, V-A-R-N-A, which means occupation. And, and that is not by birth. Okay. And then there is something called Jati, which is uh, community, your ethnic group, your community. Now, traditionally, occupation was classified into different kinds of specialties, but they were not by birth. So you don't have to be born in that tradition, into in that occupation. And there are plenty of examples where somebody was born very poor, very humble, and became a great scholar, and they are worshipped. They are the author of one of the spiritual texts, for example, and they're considered rishis. And then there are other examples where somebody may have been born in a very noble house and very highly evolved people, but he's no good and he's, he's got a very low life. So there are plenty of examples in the, in the ancient scriptures of people navigating professions and navigating uh, you know, from one, one strat, strata to another, uh, not in, in keeping with your parental heritage, but independent. So that is a kind of a karma-based meritocracy. If you think of karma as an individual meritocracy, that's how it works. But over time, things changed. Over time, things uh, became more uh, fixated on ne nepotism set in. When nepotism set in, sets in, then I want my children to enjoy the, the good things I have. And, and, and I will give, play favorites to my children over other people's children. And so part of what I want to pass on to them as inheritance is some privileges. So these kind of things, I think, happen in every society. So they happen in Indian society. Some of the worst uh, you know, this, uh, problems of this kind of thing happened when there were, there were invasions, uh, Islamic invasions. It's politically incorrect to say all this, but the facts are that India suffered thousand years of Islamic rule. And these Islamic invasions were very serious, very harsh. They were the biggest genocide that you can imagine. In, in the order, of... forgive me for interrupting you. Is it, I've, I've read in the order of 80 million dead. Does that sound right? At least, wow. at least. 
And, and you know, today it's 1.4 billion, but at that time there were 200, 300 million people. So as a percentage of population at that time, it's a huge amount. I mean, you're talking about a large fraction of the people. And you're talking about the invaders putting the skulls of these people on spears, making these towers of skulls, uh, burning collectively. I mean, you know, so when a society gets so uh, demonized and so psychologically shaken up, and especially the leaders are killed, because, you know, in, uh, invaders like to kill the leaders because if there are no leaders left, there cannot be a rebellion. And, and the people who are left behind are easy to turn into slaves and servants. And so when that happens, then, you know, society and parents and families huddle together to protect each other and look after each other rather than think of the bigger good. So the society undergoes all kinds of trauma and a traumatized society in India's case ended up with a lot of communities looking after themselves, some of them becoming Muslims, some of them becoming compromised Hindus, some of them becoming a kind of nebulous and opportunistic, going this way, going that way. Some of them saying we are Hindus, but we kind of keep a low profile and we won't show, uh, be very proud of it. And all of this has an effect on uh, the economy. The economy goes down and it has an effect on social structure, which becomes stratified because the stratification uh, is one way that a society can sort of uh, manage its pain and manage its pain where some people have more than others and they want to hang it, hang on to it themselves. So this stratification uh, historically coincides with these foreign invasions. And then, you know, the British come and they are the ones who introduce the term caste. Actually, the Portuguese the caste is not an Indian term. Caste is a Portuguese term. Casta is the Portuguese term. Uh, so the Portuguese started describing Indian society in terms of castas, the different castas here and there. But even at that time, they when they describe castas, these castas are flexible in the sense sometimes a community is doing very well, then they don't, they're not doing well because their trade or profession goes down and some other community, their profession goes up and they go, move up. Sort of like, uh, you know, if you do asset allocation, the tech industry may no longer be a good cast in America. I mean, maybe the tech industry is laying off people. Google is laying off people. So if you think of the uh, IT cast, they're not as well off as a year or two ago. And maybe some other uh, community of professions are moving up. So in that way, with the economy shifting, uh, the different communities professionally have also moved up and down. However, the formalization of caste as a rigid hierarchy with legal consequences happens during the British rule. It happens in the 1800s, 1871. There is a man called Lord Risley, and he is sent from Britain to, to kind of build a social map of India. And he decides that he's going to create a hierarchy of races or sort of thing in India. And he interviews a lot of people and he comes up with his idea of what would be a social map of Indian society. And he defines caste as a hierarchy and he lists there are over a thousand castes uh, in his census and he lists the potters are this and the people who are scavengers are this, the teachers are that. So he comes up with names for all these different communities and he, he fixes what their hierarchy is. And he writes, it's very interesting, uh, he and his uh, census people, he's got a large army of British people who are doing the census, going around the country and counting people. The census people write in their notes that many of these caste leaders don't know where they belong in the hierarchy and we have to educate them. So obviously there is social engineering going on 
And then they also say many of these people who are lower caste don't think they are lower caste. They don't think they are lower caste. We have to tell them that they are lower caste. So this business of who is low and who is high is under this kind of pressure and under this kind of influence. If your community didn't get counted, you would not get social services. I mean, if you want basic services that the government provides and the government at that time is a British government, then you have to be counted. You have to be included. You cannot be left out. So all of this happens and the class system as we know it today gets created. Now, the stupidity was that when India got independent 75 years ago, they should have disbanded this. They should have disbanded the caste system and they should have said affirmative action will be at the individual level. So an individual who's poor will get special treatment uh, regardless of his heritage. And, and somebody who comes from a, from a certain, certain background of certain benefits he's gotten, uh, you know, by birth will no longer not have those uh, same privileges. So they should have done it at the individual level to, uh, to kind of reward, to give extra help to people who are, who need help. So, okay, but so hold on. So, so forgive me for interrupting you. So, so in the, in the U S system where you have race based affirmative action right. and in India, you have caste based affirmative action. So, uh, yes. Uh, for this professorship, Brahmin need not apply. We're only looking for whatever. The, excuse me. Excuse the term. I don't know if it's politically correct. The untouchables. The the Dalits. The Dalits. Uh, Dalits. Yeah. So 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 you know the thing is this particular uh, hierarchy of castes, which created which was created by the British, and then this the Indian government turned it into affirmative action, had the effect of political parties being created along caste boundaries. Mm. So Indian politics, democracy has a role to, unfortunately. Democracy says, democracy gave the opportunity for people of a certain community to say, we'll come together and it's a parliamentary system. And in out of say 500 seats in the parliament, if you get one or two, at least we get represented. And maybe this guy will then negotiate a better quota for us. Uh, our percentage allocation of seats uh, or jobs will be better if we have a, a member of parliament. So this parliamentary democracy allowed leaders of various castes to look at it as an opportunity. And this is called vote banking, which means you, you, you measure your importance as a political leader based on how many votes you got in your bank. And that means how big is your caste and how many of those people are going to vote for you. So this is how Indian politics has become. And unfortunately, all this is often blamed on Hinduism. Actually, it's a very complex history. And, and uh, uh, Hindu texts from the Bhagavad Gita onwards constantly say that you are, you are the outcome of your own individual meritocracy. That it's your individual meritocracy. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. But uh, my latest book, Snakes in the Ganga, We're gonna the, get largest to chap the largest chapter in that, chapter six, 100 pages, is on the history of Indian social structures. Okay, this, well, uh, all of this, all of this is explained in details in hundred pages. So I'm I'm gonna uh, soon segue to the second question I was gonna ask you about arranged marriages. But so as a segue, so how? So in evolutionary psychology, we have a principle called assortative mating, or colloquially, birds of a feather flock together. Right? The idea that for a successful long-term marriage you want to marry someone who has similar values to you, similar beliefs and so on. So is there assortative mating along caste lines? So what I mean by that is, 
Am I more likely if I'm a Brahmin to marry a Brahmin and if I'm a Dalit to marry a Dalit? Or yes. today, no one looks at that. Nobody gives a damn. Nobody asks that. You marry whomever you love. So the answer is yes to both. Depends on the segment of society. Depends on mobility. So, you know, I would correlate this not with religion because Christian Indian Christians are, have a caste system within Christianity. Mm -hmm. And Indian Muslims have a caste system within Islam. You know, they don't. They feel that a lot of people say that caste is a Hindu thing, but actually, it's uh, it's not just Hindus. All the religions have their caste system. Sikhs have a caste system. They're not supposed to, but they actually, in practice, do. Uh, the Jat, who are the peasants, uh, have uh, married internally, uh, and and you know the the people are called Khatris, who are Sikhs. They don't marry the Jats. So these caste systems exist within all this, all the religions. However, the variable. The variable is not one religion versus another. The variable is mobility. So you will find that uh, very well-to-do people, mobile people who may be born here, they're living there, their kids are in college over there. They're moving around, they're marrying across all these boundaries. And by the way, the traditional boundaries have not been just caste, but also language. So it, it, was, it, it is only recently that you'll find somebody who's Tamil speaking, and somebody who's Punjabi speaking like me getting married. But in the in the previous generations, people were localized. They were not so mobile. So you're born in a certain region and you speak a certain language. You belong to a certain community. You're more likely to get married in that community. Whereas today, what has happened is you may be born in Delhi and you're living in Chennai or in Bangalore. Or you may be born in Mumbai and you're living in Calcutta. And you just marry some local person who may be from a different language and a different, you know, caste in the traditional sense. So the the breakdown of castes and the breakdown of uh, you know caste marriages is sort of happening simultaneously with with uh, the rise of uh, education, a standard of living and mobility. These things go together. The more educated people are more mobile. They will get a job, they'll look, look online and they'll get a job which may be a thousand miles away and then when they go there I mean, they're not going to be limited to the traditional community that they came from. And you see, also modernity has the, uh, automatically makes it uh, difficult for a person who's very orthodox to sort of live within their caste, uh, you know, boundaries. The the pizza delivery man who comes and delivers pizza, you, you don't know what is his caste and whether you should take food from him or not. I mean, you don't know that. He delivers you food and you eat it. And you don't know in what kind of kitchen it was made. So even if you believe in something very pure, like similar to the, the issue of, uh, you know, the Jews have this a similar idea, kosher idea. Uh, so the kosher idea is a similar kind of an idea in the, in the Hindu tradition, but it's very difficult to uh, know the factory where my glasses were made, who made them, you know, or, or any other product that I consume. So as a practical matter, uh, these sort of uh, differentiators are going away. Well, in Judaism, by the way, you have the Kohanim, you have the Levi, and you have the Israelites. So in a sense, there is a similar, quote, caste system. Where for, even during a religious service, uh, you only stand up, for example, and do X, Y, Z if you are a Kohanim. So to your point that all people of all faiths have a system of hierarchy. I, I can certainly vouch for the fact that in Judaism, you have something similar. Let's move on to arranged marriages. What percentage, I mean, I know you may not have the exact number, but just generally speaking in the zeitgeist, what percentages of marriages today 
happened through arranged marriages versus good old fashioned I fall in love with my coworker. So I would say that the the more uh, the more educated and modern modern being a kind of a strange term, but let's say modern westernized uh, people in big cities, people in the modern econ the modern economy are moving around. They're more likely to meet somebody in their workplace. Uh, and and uh, generally they're not living. It has to do with whether you're living with your parents at home, which was a traditional way, multi-generational families. Yeah. So now people are, you know, people want to get out and live on their own. And when they have a job and they're financially sufficient, able to do so. So they're living on their own and they're going to go to their gatherings, wherever young people are. I mean, so if you go to the metro culture, there's a huge bar culture, you know, all these kind of things have come in a big way. There is sports culture. There's people who work out. There's people who have who are part of different communities, spiritual communities, a lot of spiritual communities where young people meet. So there are spaces now where young people meet. It's, and also online. There are all sorts of online dating services in India, all kind of things from serious matrimonial to just meeting people. Uh, and so the old system where, you know, your grandmom or somebody will know some neighbor and they'll find somebody and they'll arrange you, fix you up and all that is less and less the case. So now is it, the, is it a the, dichotomy of urban versus rural? If I'm urban, I'm much less likely to be arranged marriage. If I am rural, I'm much more likely to be all other things so, considered. See, so I'll tell you from my experience, there's a, there's a young woman who, uh, my my mother raised my mother died last year at the age of 95 i'm sorry quite a remarkable person and so she she funded a girls school in the neighborhood for uh, the the daughters of uh, poor people you know they come from villages they work as domestic servants and drivers and so on and so their kids need an education and she was especially concerned about girls education so she would fund this and run these kind of things schools and so she adopted the driver's daughter who was who is now 21 or 2 was like one or two years old when she moved into the house and my mother raised her. I remember I would go there and she would be tutoring her, tutoring her math and scolding her, making sure she gets good grades. And she just wanted to make sure that this generation doesn't grow up like the parents and they, this should be a properly educated. So in her will, she left a lot of responsibility for me to look after these people. And I am. And so, so one of the good things was when this person uh, graduated. Uh, you know, from her, and she wanted to, she wanted to go to fashion school, and you know, completely difficult, completely atypical of a person from a very poor village whose father is a driver, and mother is a housemaid, and she wants to go for fashion design, and she wants to be a fashion designer. So, so my mother said, you know, as long as you're getting good grades and you get into the right college, you know, we'll pay all the tuition. So I, I did all that. Okay, so she's graduated now. Now there is a family issue. Her parents, uh, every time I say what's her marriage plan, because one of the things my mother also left as my responsibility is to make sure she's settled. She gets a very good wedding and you have to be there for them and that their home in the village is paid off and they have all, all that stuff, which I will do because I, I, I really believe in this. Now, the interesting thing is when I sit down and talk to the driver, who's still the driver. He, my mother's not there, but he kind of just lives in the house, you know? So he says that his daughter is not obeying him because the the guy she he found in the village, uh, she doesn't want to marry him, okay? And she says, I don't want to marry somebody I don't know. 
and I and she's into this. She's a she's a modern girl. I mean, she's a fashion designer, and she's working in a boutique, and she's a fashion designer. She's a very smart person. Uh, so uh, this is an intergenerational thing. It is it is not caste thing. It is not. Uh, it, it's just basically she's more mobile. She's yeah. born and she's raised in uh, in a different uh, you know level of education. And she doesn't want the idea of she'll go back to the village and have to marry a guy who's not that well educated. And 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 she doesn't want to be a housewife in that sense. So you know you're seeing hundreds of millions of these revolts. These and this is good. I see it in a positive sense that uh, there is no need for there is no international human rights. No feminists coming and beating up. It's the it's average human beings doing what they want to do with their lives. And there is plenty of agency that people have, and they they optimize their life based on their own person. Now, she, she, there are other girls, I'm sure, her age who think differently, who will say that you know, dad and mom will fix me up with some guy, and I'll go home and be married and live in the village and raise a family, and that's fine too. So I think India Indian society gives in an immense number of choices now, and there is no. Uh, top-down kind of, there are all these NGOs trying to engineer and tell all these people what's good for them, but I think they have limited success. In the end, the people are very empowered, they're very, they have a lot of agency, and they'll end up doing what they want to do. Beautiful. Uh, Rashif, can we, I know we had scheduled only till noon, can we go for another 10 minutes, because I want to spend a bit of time talking about this mammoth right here. Can we go for Let's another 10 minutes? Okay, so, uh, so abrupt change of topic, I mean, possibly, this book, I, although I haven't read it yet, I, I plan to, you know, do it at some point, very much links to, let me move this here to my book, The Parasitic Mind. And let me mention how I think they're related and then I'll, I'll cede the floor to you. So in The Parasitic Mind, I'm basically arguing that human minds can be parasitized by what I call idea pathogens and that these idea pathogens uh, originally were uh, spawned on university campuses by intellectuals and professors. And now these dreadful ideas, these parasitic ideas have escaped from the lab, so to speak, and they are parasitizing every nook and cranny of society. And so then I was happily surprised when I was going through a review of your book. In a sense, you're talking about something very similar, right? You're talking about a few, what I call idea pathogens, that are part of the cluster of wokeism, the Marxism and so on, that is now infiltrating Indian society. But you have an interesting thesis and that where you place the original lab of where the leak took place at Harvard University. Did I summarize that correctly and then take it from brilliant. there? No, brilliantly. You said it You said it in a different way than I expressed it, but it's actually a very good way. Uh, so I, I, what surprised me is, is this. Uh, some Indian billionaires who have, uh, in the last generation, made tens of billions. Some of them are the, in the top. One of, one of the guys is the richest or the number two or number three richest man in the world, you know, after, after Musk. There's this guy called Adani. Uh, and then there are other families in the top 10 in the world. There are some Indian families. So there are all these very, very rich Indian billionaires. Some of them, not all, have, are, are huge funders at Harvard. Uh, and, and 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 other places, uh, and and the kind of funding, the kind of content being produced is actually anti-capitalism. It's Marxism. It's wokeism, and you wonder why would capitalists who made their money in the free market system 
be funding and uh, be funding their very demise of that system. And you know, the same question could be asked of uh, Jeff Bezos or uh, or Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates and so on. You know. So, so is it a form? Before this- you go on, before you go on, is it a form of the the old Catholic principle of indulgences? Right. I. I made tons of money, but now I need to signal that I'm a man of the people down, down with the bourgeoisie. And that's what I'm doing. Is that what is effectively driving them? Some of it is like that. Some of it is like that. Some of it is uh, uh, is uh, uh, basically, uh, I believe that there is a longer term agenda, uh, which is discussed in my artificial intelligence book, which is to dismantle society yeah yeah that's the book dismantle society and create a new digital caste system this new digital caste system will have privileges based on your social credits your esg rating uh, you know who is compliant who uh, the, the google likes more who twitter likes more who facebook likes more their scoring algorithm who's politically correct who, who writes certain things and they think that this is wrong and bad and they, they give him negative marks and they deplatform him and who writes the right kind of things and therefore he's considered a good guy. So I think algorithms and artificial intelligence have become in the social media and other places become the way to create a kind of digital caste system of privileges. And we don't like to admit that China, while China has this problem of social credit system, we think we don't, we do. Whether it's a combination of your financial credit that the banks have and your airline frequent flyer, how many privileges you get and where you shop and what Amazon thinks of you and your social behavior and all these lights and traffic lights and wherever you go are watching you and there's facial recognition. So these may be multiple authorities and multiple databases, but they're all internetwork. And so in the end, there is such a thing as you are being evaluated, surveillance is going on and this is going to evolve into who gets to have what privileges. Uh, so this is a, there's a whole lot written on this, proposing this from the World Economic Forum. And it's quite scary. This is th- that this kind of a thing is coming from Harvard Kennedy School. It's coming from World Economic Forum. So the, the conclusion of this chapter uh, it talks about this. Now you put this into context of woke. Why would capitalists be supporting woke? My thesis is they support woke because woke is the wrecking ball of the old society in order to make it possible to create this new hierarchical society. So if I want to create a new hierarchical society where the lowest level people are morons, they're just morons and they are happily managed because you give them enough uh, goodies, enough joy, enough pleasures, artificial pleasures, artificial intelligence brings artificial pleasures and they're happy and they're going to be complicit, and they're going to vote the way you tell them, they'll buy what you tell them, they're on autopilot, the algorithm is running their life, okay? Then above that are little more useful people, but they're also kind of compromised and so on. And ultimately at the top are the people who control the algorithms. So if you want to create a society of that sort, which I know is a dystopian view, but that's the view I'm proposing here, is a view that ought to be taken seriously, because this view is contrary to the view of consciousness evolution, which is what I believe in. My what I what I wish to have is a humanity that is evolving consciousness collectively and not where we are evolving algorithms to manage our consciousness. And these algorithms are run by certain people. But unfortunately, this algorithm 
so the uh, a, a byline of my, uh, uh, the, you know if you look at my artificial intelligence book a, a major part of it is called being versus algorithm being is the consciousness the conscious being which is manifested and algorithm is this uh, causation that is becoming smarter and smarter and kind of trying to control so this is i think the dichotomy and these billionaires are trying to use algorithms to control being and dumb down the being and therefore the woke is a useful idiot the woke is a useful idiot because they're not going to get liberated they're not going to get better off the underclass are not going to get win they're just being used to destroy society so this is the big game as i see it in this book and in the case of the united states critical race theory is the weapon yes. the ideological weapon and in the case of india it's critical caste theory that is the same kind of weapon to demolish society to demolish traditional structures faiths religions family family demolish the family uh, so that when you have people who are completely helpless emotionally and psychologically vulnerable and uh, then you can co-opt them and put them into a new system and give them goodies you know give them pleasures give them free netflix streaming uh, free sex or virtual sex give them a place in the metaverse and those who don't comply will be kicked out of the metaverse like you've been you know uh, communicated so i see a digital hierarchy a digital slavery a digital caste system emerging and i see wokeism playing the role of dismantling the old structures that are coming in the way including nation states so that's sort of the uh, overall thesis in this book so in so in the per, in my book in the parasitic mind once i describe each of these parasitic ideas or idea pathogens then as any good physician would do i offer a solution i offer a cure so a, a, if if you don't mind me saying a mental vaccine so to speak so what it is there a prescriptive course of action in your framework that says okay india is going down into the the, the 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 abyss of wokeism and here are steps one through four by which we can extricate ourselves from this nonsense what well, what is it yes ab absolutely so first of all indian public needs to put pressure on our billionaires in india that you have enough work to do in india rather than getting harvard to fix indian society harvard cannot fix american society they certainly cannot fix indian society rather than harvard coming up with policies and training an army of uh, activists who will come to india and do all whatever they want to be done that is the wrong strategy do not take it overseas you have enough talent enough knowledgeable people enough good people in india fund this money in india itself that's a call to action which i think will work because there's going to be public pressure on these people these people in india enjoy like i i status of being like gods and now the now people are going to ask questions like if you are at domestically you are so well regarded why is it that your foreign uh, philanthropy is so distorted so that's one call to action another call to action is public itself needs to resist surveillance uh, people this is true all over the world you know they're putting up these lights all over the place these street lights these new fancy street lights that have got sensors in them so you are being watched all the all the time not only the street not only the traffic lights but the normal street lights cameras like this one you know and there aren't enough laws protecting privacy there just aren't i mean they they claim to have laws but at least the laws in india don't exist what makes it worse in india than in the united states is that 
the people who ultimately control the algorithms and control the big data are not located within India. They're not accountable to anybody in India, neither the government, nor the law, nor the shareholders. They are people sitting in places like Google. So at least in the United States, you have them sitting domestically and you could make laws. You could uh, uh, pressure if people in your community, your town could pressure the local municipality to ban cameras. They could say that any camera other than the one that you want yourself is not going to be allowed. I, as a citizen, when I walk around, I don't want to be under surveillance. You could, in theory, do that, you see, because you have local control. So I think that uh, the remedies have to be uh, multifaceted. We got to go to high leverage points like billionaires funding all this stuff and tell them, hell no. And then we have to, as citizens, we have to get wake up, wake up and educate our people that this wokeism is not going to help the, the blacks or the Dalits or the, 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 you know, whoever it's supposed to help. It's not going to do that. It's just creating a new church, a new religion with its own, with its own hierarchy, with its own priesthood and with its own dogma. And this business of cancel culture is so horrible because it's the most anti-liberal thing you can have. Okay. I mean, I, I keep getting canceled just because I say things like this. And I keep saying, I keep saying, I invite you to come and have a discussion with me. You can disagree with me. I invite you to come on video shows and let's have a physical dialogue discussion. You, you pick the time, the place, the forum, I'll be there. And let's have a meaningful, honest, mutually respectful uh, uh, discussion where we can disagree. But they don't want dissent. I mean, that to me is the ultimate anti-liberal. So this business of being progressive is a misnomer because these so-called progressives are very antithetical to the true liberal. You're, uh, so you're speaking my language. I mean, imagine being the outspoken professor that I am inhabiting the ecosystem of the university every day. I'll tell you, it's not easy, Rajiv. So, so for the benefit of my viewers, because I'm going to put this up also. This has been a sure. great conversation. For my viewers, I want you to tell a bit about yourself. Sure. Because we introduced me, but introduce yourself a little bit. So I, because you're a very important person and I want my people to know that. Sure. I Thank you for saying, thank you for uh, asking me to do so. So uh, I'm an evolutionary behavioral scientist, which basically means that I apply evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology, specifically to study consumer and economic decision-making. For example, how do our hormones affect our consumatory instinct? Okay, so that's my scientific work. And But I also am someone who for many years now has noticed the, the departure from reason that we are seeing on university campuses. And Given my personality, which is I'm irreverent to authority, I speak my mind, I'm I'm a truth seeker, uh, I'm combative, maybe because I'm from the Middle East, maybe because I'm called Gatsad. And so I've also weighed in quite heavily on issues that, of course, Rajiv also tackles all of this woke stuff, those parasitic ideas. So that's really the two areas that I try to contribute in. Many years ago, I started a a YouTube channel uh, where I invite uh, brilliant and interesting people like Rajiv to come and have conversations. I, I think I was one of the first ones to do so. Now, everybody and their mother has a podcast, but when I first started, there weren't that many. And so, yeah, I'm, I just love, I mean, it just excites me. I mean, you talk about spirituality. For me, having a great conversation with a new friend is a form of spirituality. That's part of the, the beauty yeah. and joy and mystery of life. Yesterday, I didn't know Rajiv. Today, I consider him a friend. So 
that's who I am. I hope your listeners will subscribe to my channel. No, I have fantastic. Thank but, you. But tell me one thing: where are sure. you located? Where are you physically located? Yeah. So, uh, regrettably, I'm in Montreal. I say regrettably not because Montreal is not a beautiful city. It is, but number one, I despise the cold weather. Number two, I despise the parasitic socialist taxation system. I don't think that the government should be taxing me at the rate this book right here of 50 plus percent it's my ideas it's my words it's my childhood in lebanon you don't get to keep 50 plus percent of my personhood and so i'm looking to eventually hopefully leave canada i'm thankful to canada because if some of your viewers don't know we're lebanese jews who escaped uh execution in Lebanon during the start of the Lebanese civil war. So I'll be forever grateful to Canada for having given us a home and a chance to start. But I don't think you should be taking 50, 60% of my income as as a form of uh, jizya. Let's put it this way from the Quranic <laughs> term. <laughs> but uh, I do have that one... Used be, that, that, that used to be 10%. That used to be ten percent. Now it's gone up to almost fifty. It's uh, it's the it's the core on on, on, on steroids in Canada. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I hope so you have you. a you have a very you have a very Quranic uh, prime minister also. I mean, he's also. <laughs> we I mean, do I, have. I, a... I, 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 so so. I'm sorry. We you should have some more questions because this was like just getting to know each other. I would love to. It's such a pleasure. I do have one last personal question for you, and then I'll let you go. Are you ready? So, so one of the things that okay. I sure. talk of, one of the things that I often ask my guests, it's kind of become a tradition, is the following question. And let me set it up before I I ask it. So, one of my former uh, doctoral uh, professors, uh, when I was a doctoral student at Cornell, his name is Thomas Gilovich. He pioneered the study, the psychology of regret. And he argued that human beings suffer from two types of regrets, regret due to action and regret due to inaction. Regret due to action would be, I regret that I cheated on my wife and it brought the end of my marriage. I, I regret that I was an idiot. So that would be regret due to action. Regret due to inaction would be, I regret that I went into medicine because that's what my dad told me to do. I always wanted to be a fashion designer, like the, the young woman that you spoke of. And I regret that I never did that. And it turns out that over the long term, Rajiv, most people regret inactions more than actions. And so let me now turn it to you uh, as someone who's lived a rich and full life, hopefully many more years to come still. Uh, what would be your greatest regrets thus far? So, you know, my greatest regrets in the second half of my life, the first half was uh, computer scientist, entrepreneur, businessman, uh, living this fast life, making money and accumulating. And then uh, before I before in my early 40s, I decided to go the other way, give that up and go into this mode, which is without income, philanthropy, giving back, learning and all that stuff. So focusing on the second part, this, this phase of my life, uh, I wish I had uh, not held back uh, publishing. Uh, I have 20 more books to publish. Wow. Uh, they're almost done. 20, they're almost done. But the point is, I, I in my quest to fix this problem and make sure I've also included that and be perfectionist and, and keep trying to complete them more and more and more, I wasted so much time. I, I, I My advice to young scholars is... is 
as you are as you are developing your scholarship, keep publishing it out and keep you can keep improving upon it. You don't have to work, wait for some finality or some stage of perfection before you publish it. I really wish that some of the theories that I have developed, which have not yet been published, I wish they had been out 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they could have made a big difference. And I just waited too long. Uh, and and uh, so I didn't manage my own uh, career uh, as a, in terms of the impact on society. I did not manage it wisely. I was too much driven by what was interesting for me. So I would go on and on pursuing something, some problem that was interesting to me, and then leave it, go on for another problem and another problem. And then the books came out whenever they came out. I, I think if I had more of a strategy and a purpose, a marketing plan, I could have done a lot better. That's, I, that's my biggest... Uh, I, I, I love your answer because I can so relate both in terms of the maladaptive perfectionism. One of the scariest things I face as an author is when I receive the galley proofs and I worry what happens if I don't pick up the, the comma that is in the wrong place. And so I end up spending an inordinate amount of time going over and over and over the stuff, which of course ends up eating away at your productivity. So I agree with that. And I agree with your second point about not having strategized enough. I actually discussed this in my next book on how to live the good life. And I talk about the fact that I'm very much of a purist. I just go wherever the spirit takes me. If I'm interested in something, I do it completely unencumbered by, by a careerist calculus. And to some extent, I regret that because you don't live in a bubble. You do live in an in, in a, in a ecosystem where people expect you to do certain things. But on the other hand, if I can assuage your regret and mine, I think the way we do it is really the purity of spirit. You're just going with what interests you. So maybe we don't need to be regretting those things. There is a joy. There is an inner joy in having followed your, what we call Svadharma, which means my calling. Exactly. Beautiful. Uh, Rajiv, thank you so much. This was, you, you are a delight to talk to. I look forward to many future conversations. Stay on the yes. line so we could say goodbye offline. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a real pleasure and thank honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rajiv.